Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen of the internet and the blogosphere, I'm super duper excited to be speaking to one of my Baha'i heroines, Ruha Benjamin, Dr. Ruha Benjamin, this morning. Hi, Ruha. Hi, good morning. Nice to talk to you. I'm oh, thrilled. So nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. I know how super busy you are right now and uh, making time uh, to talk to this um, this little podcast, um, we have, I think we're up to like four dozen listeners. So there's All four right. dozen people who are about to have their minds blown. So that's fantastic. Hi guys. <laughs> In fact, you can, you can thank each one individually. All right. There's time. So, um, cool. Uh, what's going on? What are you teaching at Princeton University, Dr. Ruha Benjamin? Yeah, so this semester, fall 2017, I have one main class that I teach, which is called Black to the Future, Science, Fiction, and Society. And it's a class that's looking at all these emerging technologies that are coming on the scene, thinking about the social dimensions of technology, how they, you know, um, they can very easily, if we're not careful, reproduce all kinds of inequalities that already exist, but they also have the potential to challenge and um, challenge our existing hierarchies, whether it has to do with race or class or gender. So one of the phenomena that I'm, we're looking at in the class is the whole thing uh, around racist robots and how all these new algorithms that make all kinds of decisions in our lives, um, because we're not really thinking carefully about what goes into the design process, often reproduce the biases that many of us hold. And so this class is fun to teach because it's also we're also thinking about how to design differently. So I try not to leave my students pessimistic at the end. And we try to do hands-on projects that's thinking about how to change the world, not just study it. Wow, I have so many questions. Number one, if there was a movie about a racist robot, I would be I could play that. I could play the <laughs> racist robot. That's where your mind goes. Number already. one. Let's talk scripts after. So this. yeah, okay, let's develop something here. Number one. Um uh, number two, can you give me an example of, because uh, I know these bots and these algorithms yeah. are working all the time behind the scenes, and there's so much yeah. of what's disrupting the American political process and yeah. uh, uh, the yeah. kind of the very narrow news and information yeah. that we all get. So how can you give me an example yeah. of one? Sure. I'll give you three quick examples. One is what you just described as a chat bot that was released on Twitter. The idea was that this algorithm would learn how to speak in conversation with, with other, other Twitter users. But because of all the things that other people were tweeting at Tay, which was her, the name given to her, she very quickly in the matter of a few hours started tweeting things like, um, the Nazis were right, we should kill all the Jews. Um, I effing hate feminists, they should all die. Because she was in conversation with people who were tweeting these things at her. So not only was Tay become quickly racist, but sexist and and a, a, a genocide apologist in many ways. And so Microsoft had to quickly take her offline. And um, and, and so that so was just one example. mirroring a, a robot, mirroring. mirroring the hate that it saw online. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's, a, that's the most obvious kind of like the mirroring. But then there's the very much more deliberate designing of algorithms without taking into consideration the biases that data scientists and the, the software designers actually hold, the blind spots, we might think of them. So there was um, a launch of an uh, online beauty contest in which the, uh, the designers created five robot algorithms to judge beauty. And people sent in selfies from all over the world, 6,000 selfies, every continent. Um, and these algorithms were meant to judge the beauty based on wrinkles and symmetry and, and like, um, you know, bumps on the face. And so the training sets that the designers used to train the algorithms to recognize beauty they themselves were biased. So then the, 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 the winners were almost all white and fit a very narrow slice of the beauty standard that we know is itself socially produced, right? It's not mm. a universal standard of beauty. But because so the designers... The, in that case, it's the designer's yes. bias and yes. um, 
kind of un unwitting bias yes. as they were doing the programming that influenced this whole technology. Exactly. So that's another route that's much more, it's more concrete because you can point to like who the people were who created the training sets for the algorithms. The other more diffuse ideas that, you know, so many of these, the, the most, in, what we would call the intelligent machines are learning from us. And so they're also learning the good and the bad. And so we want to try to, I kind of think of it like raising kids, right? And so they pick up everything that you are and you do. And so what we try to do with our kids, we want them to be better than us, <laughs> right? We want to say, mm -hmm. I have all these things, but I also want you to, to give you a lens to move in the world that's a higher standard. And so what, what does it mean to, to raise our robots with a higher standard than we have to not just reflect us, but try to push us to be better? Well, you said ways. that at the beginning that there's an opportunity here to kind of challenge the status quo. Yeah. Uh, and this world, the new world of technology to kind of, look at the lens of racial inequality and racial injustice through technology and make it a new a new playing yeah. field. So what positive yeah. things do you give your students to to shoot yeah. for in this in this world? Yeah, I mean one of the principles there's a number of principles that we sort of talk about because it's there's no formula but there's a kind of things you should think about when you think when you're going to go about designing technology. One is that often the market logics of getting things on the market faster and quicker prevent us to really think carefully about the social dimensions of what we're producing because we're racing against other companies to get our thing out first, right? And so partly what we have to do in terms of more socially conscious design is find ways to go slower with more deliberate sort of thought. And so one of the things to keep in mind is that we, the history that exists in the world um, in terms of race, like if you think about segregated neighborhoods, that is often going to get reproduced in the technology. So Facebook has this thing where companies can go and target different consumers, like mm -hmm. when you're on Facebook. Sure. And they, had, they created a, a function called ethnic affinities, which means that real estate companies could go and choose which ethnic groups they wanted their ads to reach, which meant they could also take out certain ethnic groups from getting their ads. So mm -hmm. you could choose. I don't want my ad to be seen by Latinos or African-Americans, which goes against civil rights law. We've created all these laws that says, you can't discriminate in real estate practices because that was, you know, that that reproduces certain forms of inequality. Um, but now we have technological means to do it where a company doesn't have to go directly to someone who's looking for a house and say, no, this neighborhood is not for you. But in showing their ads through these these targeted advertisements, they can um, exclude people. And so members of Congress had to write Zuckerberg and now you can no longer do that. So that was after the fact. They realized, oh, this can be used to harm people. Mm. But what about in the original design of that function? They thought about that to begin with and said, do we really want to give companies the opportunity to exclude ethnic groups? Mm. <laughs> you that's know? And so that's after the fact. So we want to try to build some of that thought in the, in the upstream process to begin with. That's fantastic. How did I have so many questions, and we're going to get into your history and backstory and philosophy yeah. and everything. But... Um, how did you get into this area? This is, yeah, <laughs> that's why it's so wild. I mean, it's yeah. a new frontier. Yeah. So I, I went to grad school in California and California fancies, fancies itself as like on the cutting edge of everything. Right. And so at the time when I was, um, at, at Berkeley, this huge initiative was being passed in California to invest in stem cell research where, Everyday people could go to the ballot box, vote, okay, do we want to invest $3 billion into stem cell research, taxpayers' money? Um, and so the we voted in favor of this initiative. This whole state agency was created. And this was around the time that I was looking for a dissertation project. And I thought, okay, you know, this this got sold really quickly to the the the, the public. Let me study this from the inside out. So I got an affiliation with this stem cell agency. And was thinking really, I just wanted to know what were the social dimensions of this scientific initiative? What groups would be included? Who was it meant to benefit? And so asking sociological questions about something that was seen as a, a strictly scientific initiative. And so my first book was around that entire process of looking, it was called People Science. And it was looking at, you know, um, how stem cell research affects people with different disabilities, different racial ethnic groups, class strata. So one of the key things about that um, project was that the same time that we invested in this cutting edge futuristic technology around regenerative medicine, the majority of the public voted against an initiative that would have um, 
allowed more basic health care to Californians, right? And so we said, no, we, we're not going to expand basic health care, but we are going to invest in this cutting edge um, research. And so for me, that, dis, that asymmetry is what I care a lot about when people don't have the basics, but a, a, an elite can have us invest in something that, you know, is, is so magical, <laughs> you know? And so that same set of questions I bring to the questions around algorithms, the questions around um, different, different technologies and, and fields that have a lot of promise, mm -hmm. right? And claim to better the world, but I'm always kind of interested in the underside. What's, what's not being Because how about? could our cultural proclivities not seep into these other areas? How could yeah. they not? Yeah, that's the thing. But but the way that we're often trained around science and technology is it it happens in a bubble. Mm. It's removed. It's asocial. It's ahistorical. And we just need to wait for the benefits to trickle down to us, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Um. And and what this body of work that I've been contributing to says is no, it's already all. It's all humans doing it. <laughs> mm -hmm. We're all human. We're doing it. We're creating this stuff. And so whatever our tendencies are. And whether when it comes to like the economy or education, it's also going to affect science and technology. It's part of part of life. That's fantastic. You know, I um, my wife and I went to the premiere of the new Star Trek uh, Discovery show last night. <laughs> yes, she's giving me the live long and prosper sign. Thank you. Um, and one of the most incredible things there's been a huge backlash against the show because it's incredibly diverse. I mean. Yes. They have the, the most diverse Star Trek uh, bridge yeah. you've ever seen. And mm -hmm. in the pilot episode, the captain is uh, an Asian woman in her 40s or 50s. And the mm -hmm. first mate is an African-American woman. And what's amazing about it, and I mean, it was just so beautiful. No, mm -hmm. one, no one referenced it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Two powerful women mm -hmm. were running the ship. Yeah. Go on an adventures together. They're yeah. they're they're kicking butt and taking names. They're super yeah. smart. But no one's kind of like, wow, these women are really smart. Yeah. Or, or these people yeah. of color are super smart yeah. or anything like that. Yeah. Because yeah. that's one of the great things I think science fiction does. You're talking about science, I'm talking about science yeah. fiction. I it's, love it. I love it. Yeah. Is science fiction can just kind of put a pause in where we are yeah. uh, as a race and Gene Roddenberry's vision. Of mm -hmm. course, the first interracial kiss on television happened yeah. in Star Trek. Yeah. Um, is to uh, to show like, look, this is the human race, and we've exactly. progressed to a certain point where we're exploring space, and we're setting up an international peaceful federation, and all yeah. human beings from this planet are involved in this, and it doesn't yeah. matter their age or, or race or ethnicity. Yeah. They're uh, they're out exploring space and being awesome. Yeah. So it, it creates a new normal, like where you you as you said, it's not even something to be commented on because. It is what it is, right? And so in this class that I teach and the work that I do, I'm trying to fuse science fiction because to me, a lot of the so-called real science is infused with stories and narratives. Like there's fictions in the science that we want to think about. But in stuff like Star Trek, there are new facts that are being sort of produced about how we can live together, you know, in ways that defy all of these categories that we think are so self-evident. And so to me, that boundary between what's fictional and what's the truth gets really blurry. And I love that blurriness that you're describing in Star Trek. I think for me, as a fan of the original series back in the 70s and being a little mm -hmm. kid and growing up a Baha'i kid, like, mm -hmm. I think my love of both kind of fused together yeah. because this ideal world where yeah. humanity as a species yeah. um, are, are, are exploring and growing and maturing yeah. together. It's it's Baha'u'llah's vision, yeah. you know, exactly. as seen through this lens of, uh, of science yeah. fiction. Yeah, my dad who, my dad learned about the faith in the 70s in Los Angeles, and he was a lifelong Trekkie. That's where I inherited that. And so when we went, um, my family went pioneering to the Marshall Islands in the mid-90s, before Apple TV, before Netflix, all I had were boxes and boxes of his Star Trek tapes, VHS <laughs> tapes. That was my only entertainment for like nine months. I watched every episode. I watched them multiple times. And that, that I, my, the way that you described it, I think is really what um, 
it, it's emblematic of why he loved the series so much. As he was learning about the faith, he also became more and more enthralled by just this vision of a future that defies the reality that we think we're so entrenched in. Yeah. And fiction has that way of saying, no, actually, if we can imagine something differently, we can make it a reality as well. Nice. Well said. You, how old were you when you went to the Marshall Islands? I was um, 14 years old. And how long were you there? So I was there with my parents for nine months. Then I went to boarding school in Southern Africa. They were there for six years. So, so they, I went. They had you on an island in the South Pacific, and they're like, <laughs> "Okay, she's feeling a little left out here. No. You know, we're out of the mainstream. We need to her to. So let's send her to boarding school. I know no. in South Africa. How does no. that happen? So that the plan to go to boarding school happened before the plan to go to the Marshall okay. Islands. So I, I had already had to apply to this international school there, and. The, just the way that the, the cal calendar for that school is, it didn't start until nine months after we were moving. So I moved with them and then I went um, to boarding school for two years and then I would visit them occasionally while they were there for the six years in the Marshall Islands. Wow. Yeah. So what's, where did you grow up before 14? Yeah. So I was born in India. That's where my mom's side of the family's from. I moved to LA when I was three years old. Um, spent um, three to nine years old in LA, then moved to South Carolina, where my parents um, worked at Lewis Gregory Baha'i Institute in South Carolina. So I was there from nine to 14. And then we went to the Marshall Islands. So I haven't lived anywhere more than six years. <laughs> you were a true world citizen. <laughs> India to, to LA, LA, to South Carolina, to Marshall Islands, to South Africa. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> your parents, uh, your dad's African-American, your mom mm -hmm. is Persian Indian. Mm -hmm. um, what's that like? What, is, what perspective does that give yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question. Um, so um, I think that one way to think about it is that I, I, I always look at the world from the Southern perspective. <laughs> That's the way I describe it. The Southern perspective as in, you know, often in terms of the geography of, of the globe, but also in terms of a city, the Southern part of the city often is like where the, the other side the, of the, the tracks, the underside of the tracks. Right. And so um, wh wherever I've lived, I've sort of taken on that perspective, I think partly as a function of my parents, but also the choices that they've made, not just their identities, but where they've chosen to live, what kind of work they've chosen to do. And so I, and I bring that perspective even to my own research as a scholar is like, okay, this great, wonderful, shiny thing that I'm being presented, let me look at it from the underside, like what's being left out, what's put in the dark. And so I think that that perspective from below to think about what questions are being ignored, whose voices aren't heard is something that is kind of a constant refrain for me as a function, I think, of who they are, the choices that they've made, um, and just how they've just kind of lived their own, you know, they haven't followed a script, right? And so my dad was 19 when he went with a group of youth from LA to India to, to do some travel teaching, and they met at a Baha'i youth conference. My mom was there for college and she was giving a talk at this um, youth conference. And the day after they met, they decided to get married. And a month later, they got married and they got the consent and, and agreement of both sides of the family. You know, my dad's telegramming my African-American grandma in L.A. I want to marry this Indian girl. My mom is asking my grandfather in another small town in India, I want to marry this African-American man. And, you know, it also also a testimony to the, the whole family that they embraced their union, because a lot of times when people are trying to defy the scripts that they're given, the families stand in the way and the families kind of um, create disunity by not supporting the, the, the choice. And so I, I feel like I have an example in my folks, but also in my extended families who have always just supported their choices and said, no, like, let's tear up the scripts. <laughs> let's do what we want to do. That's an incredible story. Um, so it really took a lot of bravery on your mom's part to kind of say, because uh, there's a very powerful script of, you know, people from a certain ethnic group marrying a person of that same ethnic group, uh, yeah. especially in 
places like uh, Persia and Iran and all the Middle Eastern countries. Um, so to break away from that, uh, yeah, huge. Yeah, yeah. I think both of them really, um, you know, I mean, we all all groups have sort of these, you know, scripts about, you know, what what gains you status and what has you lose status, and that one of the things I think, you know, is there their touchstone in terms of the Baha'i faith is that it creates a new standard for what, you know, what to value, right? And it says, okay, that's nice. Your culture has this standard. Your culture has this standard. None, that's all irrelevant, <laughs> you know? Like the standard is not about, you know, having to do with certain groups, you know, being, you know, more honored than others, you know? And there's a powerful global um, denigration of black people in many, many countries. Yeah. And so I think that um, one of the the powerful correctives that Baha'u'llah brings is to say that that global anti-blackness is actually um, completely false. And so the fact that the manifestation um, says that, you know, black people are akin to the pupil of the eye that is dark in color, but is a fount of light completely reframes what darkness and blackness and black people have to offer the the entire planet. And I think because my mom was a Baha'i, her family was a Baha'i, they had a different standard than their cultural group had with respect to recognizing the inherent nobility of my father. And so in that respect, it was quite, it, there wasn't a lot of pushback. There wasn't any pushback. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> so the, fam yeah. the family embraced yeah, it. Absolutely. And what I yeah. love about that quote, too is that you need the blackness yeah. of the pupil of the eye in order yeah. to see you need exactly. it to be black it's not just exactly. a good idea or something yeah. nice or just how things work like yeah you need that's a really good you yeah. need you need that blackness in order to get the light in and ref refract it in the right way i don't know exactly yeah. how the eyeball works but yeah um, you're right on my mom hit my one of my mom's um one of the words she hates the most is tolerance because yes. that that in, implies a sense like okay we'll put up with you yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll be respectful in a very superficial way yeah. and so what you're describing is that it's not tolerance of blackness it's actually a recognition that you need it and it's yeah. the inherent worth of it and i think that reframing is so uh to what um, Baha'u'llah had to bring, um, bring humanity. I, I think I mentioned it on this podcast before, but the thing that also really bugs me is um, yeah. the coexist bumper stickers with oh, the religious yeah. symbols, symbols, because that's the same thing as tolerance, like coexist. No, we're not talking about coexist. Well, maybe people on the outside are talking about just coexisting and not blowing each other up. Yeah. That's fine. But yeah. the Baha'i, the revolutionary Baha'i take is yeah. not coexist, like embrace Yes, um, dialogue, absolutely. get together, consult, yeah. work together, yeah. understand each other and go through yeah. that really tough, difficult yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's messy. It's messy. Like coexisting tolerance. It's very neat and pretty. It's very like, you know, International Food Day. Everyone come in their cultural garb, you know. Epcot it's, Center. It's, it's pretty, you know what I mean? And it's good for photos. But the real work, I think, is messy. It's like you don't want to take a selfie. <laughs> it's like you don't, it's not cute. And I think that's what we need to embrace is that struggle aspect of what unity is about. Because, um, you know, one of the other reframings that relates to this that I think we don't fully appreciate is that, um, you know, the Baha'i faith says that in order to have unity, you need justice. Like justice is a prerequisite to unity. And so, you know, it's not it's not a superficial unity of just living together. It's that you actually have to reorder things to be more just so that you can achieve a deeper level of unity. And it's and it's messy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah. Yeah. So. You're 14 years old and you're living in the Marshall Islands. Yeah. What's that like? Yeah. I mean, it was a it was a fantastic experience. One, I was out of school for nine months and I was. I was doing a kind of early um, year of service. I approached it like that, which is what Baha'i youth are often encouraged to do after high school. Um, but this was sort of in the middle of my high school experience. And so I got to really travel to different islands. I got to connect with folks from you know all over the Marshall Islands and other areas in the Pacific who would come there. 
Um, I got to um, see the devastation wrought by the U.S. military base there. One of the touchstones for me is, um, you know, the, the juxtaposition of the island Kwajalein, where we have our, our military base, and next door there's another island, Ebai, where, where people have been displaced and where the vegetation is very sparse. It's like a, a shanty town where, you know, rates of chronic illness and infectious disease are rampant. So, and it's, but it's engineered, right? So it's an engineered impoverishment. And so, but the Kwajalein where the U.S. Army base was, where we used to go to get like Baskin Robbins ice cream and hang out, it's like golf courses and oh. green grass. And, you know, you would think it was any suburb in the U.S., but you're in the middle of the Pacific. It, it's like a made-for-film kind of lost, um, you know, ideal place next to, you know, Ebi. And so for me, one of the ideas that I still draw on from that experience is that all of the inequality that we think has just sort of naturally evolved has actually been engineered. Like there have been people that have made decisions that, you know, they could have made different decisions, (laughs) in other words. And so when you think about, you know, how do we go about changing the status quo? A lot of times when you raise that, people say, oh, you're trying to go against human nature, you know, or you're trying to do something that's so unnatural. You know, um, if you talk about the oneness of humanity, uh, you know, I think we're, you know, our, we're naturally tribal people. You know, we don't we don't want to be together. All of those assumptions about what we're naturally like run against reality and history that shows that people have engineered separation. They've engineered inequality. And now we take it as natural. And so in some ways, it gives me hope that we can engineer something different. (laughs) We can Mm. create something different. Yeah. I just looked, I had a question about Marshall Islands and I looked up and it's, of course, the islands are named after British explorer John Marshall. Mm. I love how that's happened all over the the South Pacific and all over the world. And, um, but historically, the islands were known as Jolette Mm. Gen Anij or Mm. gifts from God. So wow. The islanders used to call their islands yeah. the gifts yeah. from God. That's powerful. Yeah. I mean, so many of the things that are thought of now as like culturally Marshallese are, are imports from like Americans and other colonizers, right? The names that people name their kids, mm-hmm. um, the folk, the folk dancing and other things are these kind of versions of uh, American and other cultures. So the, the, the inherent nobility of the Marshallese, you know, through processes of colonization has, has really been um, eroded. Mm. Now, the Baha'i community is pretty strong there, I understand. Yeah, yep. yeah, they have a strong Baha'i community there and throughout the Pacific, really. Yeah. So, uh, Ruha, let's uh, get a little bit personal now. <laughs> you are married and a mom Yep. Uh, how did you meet your husband? And I understand he's not yeah. a Baha'i. Yeah, that's right. And so we met through mutual friends. Um, some tw- over 20 years ago, we met um, in New York. I was going back to school in Swaziland and we kept in touch. And um, we um, have two sons uh, who are 13 and 16. And marriage is hard. You know, I think that um, Baha'is maybe along with everybody else, has a very Hollywood version of what uh, living, you know, with another human being uh, is going to be like in terms of being married, very romantic Valentine's Day version. And I think that we don't, most of us, I certainly didn't go into it with a clear sense of the, the, you know, the, the challenges about what it means to, um, you know, rub your ego up against someone else's every single day. And the point of it being that the point of marriage being to sort of shave off a little bit more of your ego. Ah. (laughs) Isn't that kind of the point of life though, really? Point of life, but I think marriage is the the ground zero for that. I don't. Someone I don't said. Really... <laughs> I think it was Marianne Williamson said that marriage is a soul growing machine. Yes, I love that. I love that. I mean, if you think about what does it mean to like, you know, just to 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 work with someone day in and day out, you don't really have many other contexts to do it at this level of intensity, and so 
it's both a mirror in terms of all of the things that we each need to work on to do that growing, but it's like, it's a real testing ground, I think. And so just approaching it with that sense that struggle should be, is a part of it. I think it's just a better way to approach it as, a, as opposed to thinking it's just supposed to make you feel good all the time. So you know? <laughs> you, we're, we're going to get a little bit later to your talk yeah. uh, at the LA Baha'i Center. I know it's a talk you do a lot and you call it the beautiful struggle. Yes. So marriage <laughs> is a different kind of beautiful it is. struggle. I mean, it is. a fight I against think... injustice is a beautiful exactly. struggle, but I love the word struggle because yeah. it's like you said before, it's messy and mm -hmm. uh, people want things to be clean and easy. They want to be clean and easy. And I think, um, you know, like relationships and, and marriage in particular, like it, it's so shrouded in fantasy and fairy dust that as soon as people like get a whiff of, you know, okay, this is a relationship that is meant to make you grow and growth, anything that grows, things have to break apart first, yeah. you know? And if you yeah. think about that, the, the, the process of breaking things down to grow, it's not something we are taught to embrace. And so I think, yes, the same approach to social justice and, and changing and growing society applies to ourselves and marriage is like that. So I think my own self-talk when it comes to marriage is like being very grateful for when the times are good and when everything seems to be going good, but also just being ready for um, for the struggle part of it and the and the ego shedding part of it as well. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah. The uh, you got two teenage boys. What's that? Yeah. Like? It's fantastic. <laughs> they they um, they they make me happy. Um, I think the one of the main struggles I I find as a parent is um, equipping them with with uh, a lens to read the reality that they live in, in terms of all of the, 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 the craziness, but also giving them a real sense <clears throat> of their own nobility and their own worth, because that's not often reflected back at them. And yeah, so trying it's... to hold those two things at the same time, like the reality check, the real talk, but then the higher standard, you know, and the, the, the true purpose of, you know, why we're here. That must be an incredible challenge. We're raising one teenage boy and uh, it's hard. And he's yeah. a lily white boy in the lily white suburbs yeah. where it's reflected back to him that he is of worth and potential. Yeah. And he yeah. could be running Silicon Valley, you know, yeah. in 20 years or something like that. So I imagine, yeah. and, and by the way, Ruha, uh, as you know, most of our listeners are, are not from the States. I'm, every yeah, country has its own issues of racism. Yes. But you know. Yeah, it definitely applies. And whether it has to do with race or class or gender um, or nationality, citizenship, I think whatever those um, those axes of difference that create hierarchies and create status um, that are, are founded on falsehoods, I yeah. think every society has to deal with it. So parenting in that context I think you could gather parents from all over the world to have a conversation and there would be some striking resonances no matter where that is because what you what often parents do especially those parents whose children their worth is being reflected back at them by the hierarchies that exist they often choose not to equip their children with the lens on the reality of what's happening you know it's often okay well things are working for us um you know let's have rose tinted lenses as opposed to thinking seriously about how other people are being affected. And so I think there's a different set of challenges when you are in the, the position of privilege or power in a society. Your challenge is not to keep your child in a bubble, right? And to say that, in fact, your fate, your well-being is bound up with the well-being of people who are being harmed in this society. It's not a separate reality, you know, and that if you think about one of the one of the set of statistics that strikes me is how people who live in more unequal societies, even at the state level in the U.S., the privileged people in those contexts die younger and die from a, a more, you know, a host of diseases than the privileged strata in more equal places. That is, in a more equal society, when you are, you know, when you are on top you actually benefit 
more than if you were if it was more unequal. I don't know if I'm making it clear. In other words, everyone benefits when things are when things right. are more fair and more just. It's not just those on the bottom. And so I think again, thinking about you know when you live in a context that is is running completely against our spiritual oneness. Whether you're conscious of it or not, you are internalizing that. Your body is internalizing yeah. the, 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 the falsehood. Um, you know, you are more anxious. You, when, you, when you have to hold on and you're monopolizing power resources, you internalize that. You know, you have, to, you have to build higher gates around your house. You have to get more security. You have to worry about someone taking your stuff, you know? And so... All of that anxiety. It's not a yes, natural human state to be in. It's not a natural human state. And the, and the thing is, so, you know, you feel that you are on one level certainly have it better than those who are being robbed of all of these resources. But at the same time, your soul knows it's not right. <laughs> your body, in fact, internalizes the falsehood. And so you, in many ways, we have all kinds of, you know, uh, chronic illnesses and th that are affecting white privileged people. Right now we have an opioid epidemic ravaging the country, some 800 deaths a week. And so much of that can be attributed to being overserved in some ways by a society where other people are being harmed. And so I think we all have a stake in this. This is not, when we talk about, in the Baha'i faith, when we talk about justice, this is not about charity work, right? It's not about giving something to someone um, who doesn't have, it's about all of us being bound together. We all have a stake in bettering this context. Um, you Good. know, well, let's, let's dig into it. So, and um, I want to come back to your, to your sons too. Yeah. So, um, you gave an amazing talk at the LA, at the Santa Monica Baha'i Center, uh, that we'll do a link to people should mm -hmm. listen to it. Um, mm -hmm. you, you, you hit hard on this stuff and it's really, mm -hmm. uh, exciting to listen to mm -hmm. what in your opinion, mm -hmm. what's my job? What's my job? Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm the epitome of privilege. Mm -hmm. I'm a suburban white dude. I've mm -hmm. got plenty of money. Mm -hmm. I'm a Baha'i. Mm -hmm. So what is my, what is, mm -hmm. I know that sounds like an odd question, but in, mm -hmm. from, your, from your point of view, mm -hmm. what would be the best use of my time, money, and attention? Yeah. And so the way that I think about it is, um, you know, you have a circle of influence. Some circles are wider than others. And I think our, all of our jobs is to um, disrupt and challenge the status quo in our circle, you know, and, and raising the level of discourse, challenging the assumptions that people have. And I think white people should be on the front lines of challenging other white people to think more carefully about their assumptions, about their biases and their prejudices. And, and, and so um, I think how you do that is twofold. One is to educate yourself um, more and more, you know, whether that has to do with committing, say, 20, 30 minutes a day to reading some text that is around, um, you know, racial inequality in this country or watching a podcast or a webinar. So one piece of it is, is knowing things that are more informed, not just relying on your good intention. And the other thing is to, for all of us to develop more courage to do that disruptive work, right? And so, you know, at the level of comedy, comedy is ground zero for challenging us to think about all of our assumptions, but it's also a place that can reproduce our, 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 our notions about, you know, um, race. So racial, racial jokes, <laughs> you know, is like one end, but also the challenging, the status quo is on the other. And so in your own context, thinking about how can I use this space, one, to try to challenge the, the racism that pervades comedy, yeah. but, but also, and then to use it also to say, okay, let's think differently about this. Right. And so we each have our own unique sphere of influence and we shouldn't just focus on the bad that's going on there or pretend that it's all hunky dory. Right. right? And so and you that's the way I think about it. That's beautiful. Thank you. And um, you talked earlier about rose colored glasses and I know you mentioned about the Baha'i community sometimes gets into a rose colored glasses uh, kind of viewpoint. Can you, can you describe that? Yeah. And so, you know, we have incredible writings and principles that, 
are raising the standard and calling us to our true selves and talking about the oneness of humanity. And oftentimes we, we use that as a way not to deal with the reality that we currently live in, right? And so, um, you know, we, as opposed to dealing with the injustices all around us, we jump over that <laughs> and we say, okay, but no, we're, we're one. So as if talking about the, the terrible things that are going on, are in fact producing them. No, so we have to talk about and deal with the reality that we live in to get to this higher place that we want to, right? And so I often use the uh, analogy of going to the doctor and you feel something's wrong with you, but do you tell the doctor, no, just just tell, give me a good diagnosis. I don't care what what's actually going on, you know? But no, you want to know the reality so you can tackle it with greater precision and accuracy to actually get better. And so, so with our social ills, I think a lot of times people feel uncomfortable dealing with the messy and dealing with the, the injustices, not just the injustices out there, but in the Baha'i community because we're human and we bring it into our community and life. We kind of want to go as a community sometimes straight to the kumbaya moments, yeah. kind of like yeah. uh, having a yeah. multicultural tapestry with a lot of hugs and, yeah. uh, and, uh, and a potluck with lots of different uh, yeah. styles of foods, but we don't want to really look at yeah. some of the messier stuff. Yeah, and I understand the propensity to do that is that we want to um, you know, foster a vision of how we can live well together and live in a loving and loving communities. But loving often is often a superficial idea of hugs and kisses and good food when, you know, if you think about it, like if you love your child and there's a fire on the stove and they're putting their hand on it, loving in that moment is swatting that child's hand away. <laughs> you know what I mean? Loving isn't only the feel good, it's also the hard and it's, and it's getting people out of harm's way. And so I think we need to broaden our idea of what love feels like and looks like. And that goes back to marriage because um, real intimacy with someone means conflict. And yes. it means argument and means some tough yes. conversations. Yes. And that actually leads to a deeper love. But a lot of people yes. skip that, yes. kind of sweep that stuff under the rug. And then they find it's, themselves divorced in five years yeah. because they haven't it's, really dealt with the nitty gritty. And that, that leads to a greater, a greater bonding and a greater love. Yes. Yeah. And it's, and it's that they want to skip it, but also when they get to those moments, they think that it's a sign that the love is not there or the love is gone or was never there because we don't have this broader understanding of what love looks like and feels like. It doesn't always make us feel good, right? And yeah. so in that moment, again, thinking about what growth is, like, you know, it's not something that's just about, you know, patting on each other on the back. You know, growth, growth is breaking things down, which is very like difficult and, and hard and and it, it's painful at times. So part of the, my wish in terms of just community life generally, both for Baha'is and everyone, is that we have we're equipped with a better, keener sense of what to expect in marriage, what the purpose of marriage is, because I think so often when our expectations and the reality is so far apart, like it's that gap between expectations and reality, that's the cause of disillusionment. But what if our expectations were closer in line with what, you know, what actually happens? I think people would be more equipped to deal with things when they actually are confronted with them. You talked about disrupting. Um, mm -hmm. Abdu'l-Baha came to America 101 mm -hmm. years ago. He did a little bit of uh, disrupting on a lot of different levels. I know you talk about that. Can you give us some, yeah. some of your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, so Abdul Baha, the son of the prophet founder Baha'u'llah, who um, is held up as, you know, our great example of what it means to live a Baha'i life. And again, I think sometimes we focus on the versions of love that he showed people that are in, in sync with our very narrow idea of love as sweet and, and it pats on the back. But he was very disruptive on many levels. You know, um, one of the one of the things that he did when he traveled throughout the U.S. and Europe was he befriended the people who were often the lower status of those societies. And that was very hard for the people who were even his hosts in various cities to deal with because they were trying to show him 
and get him to rub elbows with the elites, right? Like the, all the big names. And he would do that, but he would also bring into their company the lower status people who he saw as just as noble. <laughs> and so, for example, when he was visiting the U.S., he um, had the chance to meet um, uh, Louis Gregory, and who's African-American lawyer, civil rights activist, and Baha'i. And at the time, the hosts of this gathering wanted Louis Gregory to eat in the kitchen, which was oh, the standard of the time. And Abdul Baha wasn't having it. Not only did he invite him into the main dining um, uh, room, but he also placed him at his seat of honor right next to him, just totally disrupting the hierarchies at the time. And what Abdul Baha yeah. didn't do is kind of yeah. go, well, I don't want to do that because it might make people yes. feel uncomfortable in exactly. the dining room. Exactly. He went for justice rather exactly. than... Exactly. About worrying about people feeling uncomfortable because he understood that that comfort is not unity, right? That If that unity that they are all the same and of the same level is predicated on subordinating another human being, that is not true unity. And so he understood we have to go through the discomfort to get to the true unity, to get to the true justice. And so you have to basically deal with it, deal with the fact that I'm bringing this person in the place of honor. And there are many other ways. One way I don't think that we really highlight that just strikes me, and maybe I, it's, I'm making it up, is just the way he moved in the world also defied the expectations and norms about how, for example, we expect outsiders in any society to assimilate to the dominant culture of that society, whether through the way that we talk or dress, we expect assimilation as a, as a predicate for inclusion. We'll include you as long as you are like us, right? And so Abdul Baha moved through Europe and the US and he didn't assimilate in the way that he dressed at the time. It was very customary for people from the region of the world he was to, to have these really sleek wax, um, wax uh, mustaches that were very long and windy and very nice tailored European suits. And he rocked his robe and his turban and his beard was all puffy and out, you know? And to me, no one comment, no, he didn't comment on it directly and you don't find any stories about it, but it just strikes me as the embodiment of a, a radical kind of inclusion that you will, in, you inclusion has to accept people for everything that they are, not requiring them to conform as a basis of inclusion. And to me, I love that model because again, it challenges us in terms of what true unity and justice can look like. So I just heard Dr. Nader Saidi speak at this bicentenary event and he said something, um, he's on such another level of, thought and the way he puts ideas together, but he talked about the how revolutionary it was, the concept of unity in diversity, mm -hmm. and that this is the first time that mm -hmm. someone has, um, as a uh, spiritual leader, uh, mm -hmm. summoned us to unity in diversity as opposed to unity in sameness. We've yes. always had unity in sameness, yeah. you know, in the British Empire, if everyone had tea at the same time and wore an ascot and had certain ideals and worshiped the queen, then that was a certain kind of unity that could be yeah. created from, from sameness. But yes. that this is, a, uh, this is a really radical step. Yes, yes, it is, absolutely. And I think the challenge for us now is that um, we have to take that because it's such a catchy phrase and we have to think about what does it mean to make that, um, that principle of unity and diversity? How do we test ourselves with it, right? So it's one thing to say it, but one of the things I'm, I talk about a lot in the talk is how do we take these principles, right, that are kind of like theories about human nature and society and actually work with them in our everyday life, right? What would it mean to take our gatherings and think about how do we challenge ourselves to be more diverse so that we can get to a deeper level of unity as opposed to just say unity and diversity. It's like, okay, how do we change things up and see really, do we believe this? <laughs> or, or do we have a limit where no, only these kinds of uh, you know, behaviors or these kinds of um, expectations will be honored. Everything else is not, is not um, reverent enough, let's but say. But diversity doesn't just mean dress and skin yeah. color. Diversity is experience, yep. family history, uh, pain, 
um, and uh, point of view uh, from someone. So we're having unity and a diversity of thought and, and life experience. So yeah. I know for me as one of the truly privileged, like my job, which is hard, is uh, to really like try and ground myself in uh, what, is, what has this person gone through? What did yeah. their grandparents go through? What did their great grandparents go through? Yeah. Um, how is my family of privilege a part of that story? Yeah. So um, it's kind yeah. of like a, a su trying to, as, as me, I'm kind of just naturally, I'm a pretty much an insensitive jerk. Uh, just in my daily interactions with people, I'm just not yeah. very good at my, the social skills part of life. But yeah. um, I'm, I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of serious. <laughs> and yeah. so it's kind of a, a radical sensitivity to yeah. Uh, yeah. to the experiences of, of others. Yes, absolutely. I think that just being able to articulate what you need to work on to contribute to a deeper level of unity is like the ground zero, is the first step. Many people, um, they begin by thinking about what other people need to do first <laughs> for them to be unified with ever accepting, as opposed to thinking, you know, how am I, how, how do I need to change the things that are most a part of me, like my personality, in order to try to better, you know, the, 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 the general state of affairs. So I love that you're able to just articulate that. Well, I um, had a, a great experience with uh, one of our, both of our mutual best friends, Jamie Heath. Um, we got to do a little traveling together uh, in, the, in the South. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, one thing I noticed, he's African-American, and one thing mm -hmm. I noticed is that whenever he passed a, a fellow African-American, he mm -hmm. would really reach out. He would mm -hmm. really be like, hey, brother, mm -hmm. how you doing? Hey, how are you? And have a conversation and a connection. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not like he didn't do it to white people mm -hmm. or anything like that, but... And, and I, I was really remarking on this. I was really noticing this, like just the bonds mm -hmm. of friendship that he was fostering. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at myself, I was like, do I do that? Mm -hmm. Hell no, I don't yeah. do that. I, yeah. I don't, I'm not like, I'm not overt racist. I'm not, yeah. you know, but it's how, how am I being racist yeah. by not fight, fighting actively to yeah. encourage the bonds of connection yeah. with, uh, with people yeah. of, of different skin colors. Yeah. And I really have learned this and I really try to now, I, I'm not trying to get pats on the back. I'm just want to no, share no, my no. personal I experience. I got you, I love that, um, yeah. To when I go in and I see uh, black and brown people, like yeah. it's my job to reach out to them, connect mm -hmm. to them. How mm -hmm. are you today? Hello, mm -hmm. I see you. I'm, I want to be friendly and connected to you. Yes. Um, yeah. That's and that's not any big shakes, you know what I mean? But, that's not yeah. like really changing but still, the life world. Life is made up of all of these little moments. I know for a fact that what happens is the vast majority of people, as they move through the world, you know, are not thinking in that way. And so, many times, for example, when my husband comes home, he will have half a dozen experiences where people do the exact opposite of what you've done, wow. right? which is, you know, just today, they will take time to, if, if he's, a, you know, if he's working in a school, they will assume that he's not supposed to be there and ask him to come to the office to get a special badge. The cashiers will act like they're closed because they don't want to wait on him. They will do all kinds of things. So now imagine one bright spot where someone takes time to acknowledge, you know, their mutual connection. It breaks, it disrupts that pattern. And it is a big deal when it happens, right? All of the, what people, scholars call them microaggressions when it's like, you know, the opposite. I don't think they're so micro, you know? I think that it has a deep effect when you have to repeatedly deal with people who are dishonoring you, disrespecting you, ignoring you. So I think we should, you know, just not minimize the actual impact it has when we, when we, sh when we acknowledge and respect our fellow human beings. You know, in many parts of the world, the greeting for hello translates as I see you, right? Mm. And so this idea that human being, we crave, we rely, we sustain ourselves on mutual recognition. And what we've done in racist societies is built entire structures that misrecognize and refuse to recognize the humanity of people. It's not only the day-to-day, -day, 
but it's entire institutions which say you actually don't exist <laughs> or, or you are lesser than, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're right that the individual interactions are not going to necessarily challenge those bigger structures. We have other work to do, but they at least begin to disrupt the status quo, which is to say that, you know, you are everyone, each one of us is worthy of that recognition and honor and mutuality. Now here's, I have a question for you. Here's something that I have a little bit of a struggle with mm -hmm. in these kind of conversations. A lot of times, and especially if I'm reading on like behind message boards mm -hmm. or Facebook posts or something like that, sometimes I have a difficult time differentiating. Mm -hmm. um, what's the difference between a Baha'i perspective on race and race unity and, and social injustices and mm -hmm. just the political left? and Black mm -hmm. Lives Matter movement and commentators on MSNBC. And mm -hmm. certainly there can be large mm -hmm. segments of alignment mm -hmm. from in as a Baha'i from both the right and mm -hmm. the left. And the, um, yeah. uh, but what's the difference? Yeah, I don't know that it's, um, so the way that I see it is that distinguishing um, the Baha'i perspective from a political left perspective, I think that there, there's not really a need to sort of figure that. I don't feel the need to figure that out. I think what the Baha'i perspective brings to any movement for social change is an insight into the spiritual dimensions of it, right? And so whereas oftentimes, you know, the political priority is to address the material, the economic, the social aspects of the injustice. Baha'is add to that by saying, yes, we need to do all of those things. We need the laws to change. We need the institutions to be more just. Um, we need to recognize the nobility and the inherent worth of black life. Um, but, but one of the core aspects of that is that this is a spiritual reality, right? Mm -hmm. It's not simply that we're doing a political favor or being politically correct because that's the way it's reduced. It's like to do all this is to be politically correct, but no, we're being spiritually correct <laughs> mm -hmm. by, by dealing with this. And so it brings the insight, I think the deeper level commitment to the social justice movements um, that uh, for many, many people who are working in that area already have, they bring their own religious and spiritual insights to the table. And I think Baha'is are, are contributing to that, you know? And so I don't, I don't necessarily feel like we have to spend so much time um, creating a new boundary between the Baha'i perspective and what social justice movements are doing, but to actually focus on the synergies and how we can contribute to them. Yeah, that's interesting. I think the, um, you know, one spiritual perspective about it is, uh, again, Dr. Saidi talks about how ultimately racism and classism is a spiritual disease because if we're we're taught as Baha'is that everyone is a, is a soul, everyone is a luminous, radiant soul that through some random act or some cosmic act of the Creator, you know, you were put into brown skin and I was put into white skin, but we're just luminous souls beginning a spiritual journey. Then we see all seven billion of us as beautiful, struggling souls uh, beginning a long a long march into the eternity and let's help each other along the way, uh, yeah. that's a different perspective. It is a very different perspective. And again, it's like it breaks from the charity model because it's that me aiding you in this struggle is actually helping me, right? If we are one, then the idea that we are trying to create more just institutions and society, it's not simply going to benefit those who are obviously um, being harmed by it, but it's going to help all of us to live our true potential. So some of the most insightful writings, for example, around the harms of slavery or the harms of any institution that's unjust is the way that it robs those who are perpetuating that institution of their own humanity, right? And so I think understanding that um, relationship between um, you know, change and our spiritual reality, right? That we're all going to somehow but it doesn't mean that those who benefit aren't gonna have to sacrifice and give up stuff, right? If you're unjustly hoarding resources in a society built to serve you, then you may lose something on the day-to-day -day material level, um, but you will understand that to be in service to your your greater humanity. That's great. Yeah, I like, I like the idea of the um, 
no charity. Because uh, my wife and I do educational work in Haiti, and I really, um, in spending a lot of time in the last eight years in, in Haiti, realizing that handouts or the old idea of charity of like, I have something, you don't have something, I'm going to give you something to make myself feel better and you'll benefit from it. It's actually just corroded uh, developing nations and that education and why it's so important to me, Baha'i Faith, universal education, education of women and girls especially, uh, is education is empowerment. And, yes. uh, and it's hard. It's harder yes. than giving out a book. It's, it's yes. easy to go on a street corner and hand out bags of rice. It's yeah. hard to like create a, yeah. help build a school and build up teachers and work with them and collaborate and, and take kids on a, on a journey and have them, yeah. have them spread. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it but it, it also rec it has, it, it's built on a much deeper form of respect for the potential of every person. Like I recognize that you have the potential to, 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 to contribute to your own society and to build your own society, right? And so it's built on a much deeper form of respect for what we each can do, not something that I have and you don't. The other model, it, it assumes a kind of deficit. You don't have certain things that I'm gonna give you, but you have everything you need. <laughs> we just need to move things out of the way that are stopping you from realizing your potential, right? And being able to build a society that can serve everyone. I started reading this uh, on your recommendation, the uh, No Jim Crow Church about the history of the Baha'i faith in uh, South Carolina. I want to get that uh, writer on the show. It's, yes. uh, it's a fascinating history. Do you have do you have thoughts yes. on that? No, I definitely think you should get Louis Venter on the show to talk about um, the research for that book and the, the history that most Baha'is don't even realize in terms of the, the ways that communities were defying Jim Crow, defying the status quo. So thinking about it that, yes, we have to awaken to the history of racial domination and injustice, but there's always been this intersecting history of people fighting against it and working against it in their day-to-day -day lives. And oftentimes we don't highlight that, that intersecting history. That's uh, you know, the genealogy that we have to draw on now to be able to do the work we need to do, right? But only focusing on how things were terrible, however important that is, it neglects this other part of the history of how people have worked to defy it. And I think that book does such a great job. And I would love to hear the, that interview after you do it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing stuff. Early Baha'is institutionalized, but then how mental institutions were often used to kind of mm -hmm. shut down strong black males. They were just kind of shoved mm -hmm. into a into yes. a mental ward, run-ins yes. that the early Baha'i communities had with the KKK yes. and uh, authorities trying to shut down interracial gatherings, just people gathering to have some tea yes. together. Yes. And this, that was a revolutionary act. Yes, but it shows you, like, again, I think our, our ideas about what's a small act and what's a big act are very misconstrued. Mm -hmm. Like things that on the surface seem very small actually pose huge threats, right? And so... Oftentimes we should look to when things are trying to be stopped. If it seems small, it should be a clue for us. Oh, that actually is a very worthy, a worthy effort because it's posing such a threat. And so the smallest acts of defiance and unity and justice are actually, I think, loom much larger um, as having impact than we think. What's your biggest spiritual struggle right now? Um, that is a good one. Um, I think w one of them, one of them is really trying to um, encourage my sons on their spiritual path without overwhelming them and, and imposing all of my stuff on them, right? And so, you know, it goes back again, we have this beautiful principle of independent investigation of truth than the Baha'i faith. And oftentimes we think about it as only relation to people who are investigating the Baha'i faith that are as adults. But I think it applies as, as forcefully within families. So, so much of religious history throughout hum, you know, human history has been that you inherit the religion of your parents and that you just, you know, it's like DNA. <laughs> and that, no, we don't want you to question. We don't want you to think carefully. We don't want you to find your own way. You just need to listen <laughs> and follow. And I think really trying to apply 
what it means for my own sons to independently investigate truth, the truth with respect to religion, but the truth with respect to reality, right? Because I'm a teacher and I'm always on as a teacher, I'm like, I want people to listen and, and take in what I've learned, but I think I have to learn to shut that off a little bit um, with my own sons so that they can develop their own capacity to ask questions and to think and maybe to defy me. <laughs> mm. Uh-oh, so, uh-oh. So I think, you know, I think that it's starting now, but I'm, I'm trying to position myself in a way that I'm expecting that and going to embrace that rather than see that as um, them, you know, at seeing that their own path is somehow that they don't, they don't respect me or love me. I want them to be able to independently investigate life. <laughs> That's fantastic. How can people find out more about you and your work and your writings? Very easy. So I have everything. I try to keep everything updated at ruhabenjamin.com. You can um, you can get free access to most of my publications. You can see what talks are coming up. You can see videos of prior talks and you can contact me through the website. This has been just a true honor and thank you for being on the show. And uh, I've learned so much. And I think people, uh, I think all Four dozen listeners are going to be <laughs> ecstatic at what, you, what you've offered today. Thank you, Rain, for including me. Luckily, it's archived. So when you really blow up to one million, all of the recordings will they, still be they're there. They're going to be there. That's right. Thank all you, right. Doctor. My pleasure. Thank you, Rain. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night.